Welcome back, Warriors. Tunsei Sego Anibuju. Kwe Nin Deluizi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, practices, laws, and governing structures. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. But before we get to today's podcast, I wanted to let everyone know that my new book just came out. It's called Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence, and it's the second book that I've published with Fernwood Publishing. I love publishing with Fernwood because they are such staunch supporters of Indigenous voices, underrepresented voices, and they care very deeply about social justice and earth justice. So check out their many other books. The first book I published with them was my Indigenous Nationhood, Empowering Grassroots Citizens. And really, that first book is kind of a companion book to this second book. Both of them are a collection of my writings, blogs, op-eds, and media commentaries over the years, but each one covers a critically different time period. Indigenous Nationhood covers the dreaded Harper era, essentially a decade of aggressive attacks on Indigenous rights. And Warrior Life covers the Trudeau era, the so-called reconciliation era, where no relationship is more important than the one with Indigenous peoples. However, in reading both books, you'll see what has changed and what hasn't changed in terms of Canada's relationship with Indigenous peoples. And I'll leave links in the show notes in case you want to check out both books. So today's podcast is another special request from our listeners. I'm going to share with you a part of the discussion that we had about peace and friendship treaties in Mi'kma'ki, the Supreme Court of Canada decision in Marshall, and the authority of Mi'kmaq peoples to regulate our own fisheries. This was a panel hosted by St. Thomas University's Senate Committee on Reconciliation, who wanted to present a panel discussion on the issues underlying this situation happening in Nova Scotia. As many of you know already, members of Sebeg Negri First Nation launched their own self-regulated livelihood fishery, as well as other Mi'kmaq First Nations, and they've been exercising their inherent treaty rights to do so, but have been subjected to both violence, terrorism, and intimidation from non-native fishers, but also unjust law enforcement from federal fisheries officers from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. So in this panel were the Honorable Graydon Nicholas. He's from Tobik First Nation in New Brunswick, and he currently serves as the Chair in Native Studies at St. Thomas University. Also, there was Migmahan. She's from Eskinobidich First Nation, which is also in New Brunswick, and she is currently the Elder in Residence at St. Thomas. And I was on the panel, and... I think I qualified to be on the panel because I actually went to St. Thomas too. I got my first university degree there. I got a Bachelor of Arts with double major in Native Studies and History. So I have a really close connection to St. Thomas. And of course, everybody there is from back home. The panel was chaired by Trenton Augustine. He's the Indigenous Student Services Coordinator at St. Thomas University. And this is a really awesome panel for me on so many levels. I mean, I was really missing home. So it was great to be part of this discussion with them about these important issues because 
I've been learning from Graydon and Migamahan for many, many years. They just have so much insight and experience and knowledge about all of these issues that it really was a two-way learning experience. Now, today's podcast isn't the whole event. It includes our opening comments from each of the panelists and a small portion of the question and answer session that we had. And in case you want to watch the whole session, because there's a lot of really good content just in the question and answer session, you can go to my YouTube channel and look up the YouTube video called Peace and Friendship Treaties, Martial Decision and Self-Regulated Fisheries, or what I'll do is I'll post a link to the video in the show notes below this podcast. So now let's check out the session. Uh, the first up uh, we have on my list is the Honorable Graydon Nicholas. Um, so feel free to, to begin, Graydon. Thank you. Okay, well, first of all, thank you very much and everyone. It's a pleasure for me and an honor to be with two other ex- very distinguished panelists and women. Uh, I teach, of course, for a long time on treaty rights. So when a question was posed to me, could you explain treaties in 10 minutes? I said, well, it's usually a semester course, but okay, here we go. Uh, but actually, what it is, it's um, the first case that dealt with treaties was this case called the Syllaboy case, which was a case in Cape Britain. And uh, he was eventually found guilty by the, uh, by the acting uh, county court judge. The county court judge did not recognize uh, that the 1752 treaty was valid. And secondly, he said there is no way that this particular individual could trace himself back to the treaty of 1752. Strangely enough, when the treaty of 1752 was signed in uh, Halifax, it was signed by the Grand Chief of the Mi'kmaq. And the defendant, Silvoy, was the current Grand Chief of the Mi'kmaq at that time. So he was charged and convicted. And the two big challenges that First Nations people faced was, number one, to prove that the treaties, number one, were valid and that they were validly executed. And secondly, is that you could, in fact, connect yourself to these treaties. And this was a major obstacle for those of us who were involved as litigants and lawyers defending our people in the in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, actually. Fortunately, in New Brunswick, we were able to prove that the Treaty of 1779, which the Mi'kmaq had signed in Nova Scotia at the time, as being a valid treaty in that it applied to the particular individual, Gregory Paul. And it was the first time that the Court of Appeal of New Brunswick actually uh, ruled in favor of treaty rights overruling provincial law. Now in Nova Scotia, the case of Simon, which was decided in 1985 by the Supreme Court of Canada, had a second chance to look at the Treaty of 1752. And they ruled that the treaty was valid, that the parties that signed that treaty were actually had the capacity to do it, and that also there was a clause in that particular treaty, and I just want to quote part of it because that's, it says that it is agreed that the set tribe of Indians shall not be hindered from, but have free liberty to hunt and fish as usual. And of course, that was the essence of the case that Mr. Simon faced. And in the Supreme Court of Canada, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the earlier syllable decision was not valid, that it was very colonial in language, colonial in terms of uh, what, it, what it decided. And it indicated that the Treaty of 1752 is still valid. And not only that, that of course, uh, the uh, particular individual involved, Mr. Simon, uh, although he may not have had the capacity to genealogically connect himself to the 1752 Treaty, 
the Supreme Court of Canada said he is a registered Indian, he's a member of the Shubanaki Band, he's, he's, and that's sufficient for the Supreme Court of Canada. So everybody cheered when uh, that decision was rendered, and now we no longer had the obstacles of the validity of a treaty, and secondly, of course, the genealogy. Now, what brings us back then to the case uh, of what's going on in Nova Scotia now, of course, is the Marshall decision. And Marshall, Marshall, of course, was fishing in Cape Breton. And then he was fishing eel, of course, for the purpose of feeding he and his wife. And uh, outside their season that was set up by the fisheries, federal fisheries. So he was convicted at lower level and upheld in the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal. But when he went to the Supreme Court of Canada, the Supreme Court of Canada looked at that treaty of 1760 and said that it's valid, that in fact, although the term that they would in fact not only hunt and fish but trade may seem like a negative term, but he said it's positive. And it used different instruments of interpretation of law that the judges use. But in essence, the Treaty of 1760 was valid. And secondly, of course, that he, ha he had the right to make a moderate living on some necessities. And it defined a little bit in the case what those were. And it also indicated, even though there was this right to fish and sell, the thing could be regulated by the federal government. But that decision was in 1999. And from 1999 to just even now, there has been no regulations that the federal government has strictly enacted for to regulate that fishery. So that in essence is what has happened with that treaty, that it's valid. But when you stop and think in the Maritimes, what we have are what we call treaties of peace and friendship. You know, the very first one was signed in 1725. And of all places, it was signed in Boston in which uh, the Willistigawee, the Passamaquoddy, Penobscots, and of course later the Mi'kmaq all adhere to that particular treaty. And there have been a series of other treaties as well. The last one in New Brunswick was 1778, was signed at Fort Howe in St. John. The last one for the Mi'kmaq in, in this area, New Brunswick, was 1779, which is what the Gregory Paul case did. So then this is what we are. Treaties, in fact, are defined by that court. I just want to read a little bit of definition here of what a treaty is, because a lot of people will say, well, what is the definition of a treaty? And so I just want to give, and it's strangely enough, a case that was decided in British Columbia called the White and Bob case back, uh, back in the 60s. But it was reinforced by the decision in Simon. And this will be the last quote I give because I'm conscious of time. No matter questions you can raise after, but here's what the judge of the Justice Norris of the British Columbia Court of Appeal said. The question is, in my respectful opinion, to be resolved not by the application of rigid rules of construction without regard to the circumstances existing when the document was completed, nor by the tests of modern day draftsmanship in determining what the intention of Parliament was at the time of the enactment of Section 87, now 88 of the Indian Act. Parliament is to be taken to have had in mind the common understanding of the parties to the document at the time it was executed. In, in the section treaty is not a word of art, and in my respectful opinion, embraces all such engagements made by persons in authority as may be brought within the term, the word of the white man. The sanctity of which was at the time of the British exploration and settlement, the most important means of obtaining the goodwill and the cooperation of the native tribes and ensuring that the colonists would be protected from death and destruction on such assurance the Indians rely. And that definition, of course, has been approved by the Supreme Court of Canada as well in the Simon decision and other decisions as well. 
So when people ask what is a treaty, and basically if they say what he said is the word of the white man that has to be honored, the honor of the crown has to be uh, utmost in its relationships because it's got a fiduciary relationship with our people. So I'll stop there and transfer it over to the next panelist and I'm available for questions and answers later. Thank you very much. Thank you uh, tonight and I want to thank the, uh, the people, the participants who have come here to uh, listen to uh, the panel. Uh, it's, uh, it's very uh, sensitive um, for those of you who had um, seen the video last night. Um, uh, the first voice of that video you hear is, is mine. It's pretty strong, Mikamaka uh, accent. So, you know, um, I want to say that uh, in that video, uh, when we, in 1999, when we learned about the, the Supreme Court's decision on the, on the Marshall case, uh, it for us, it was a long-awaited truth to be acknowledged you know, in, in this country and in our homeland. And so uh, I remember the day when that was announced and what happened in my community. Because uh, Sinovich at the time had uh, has, like most communities, have a high unemployment. And so when that announcement was made, uh, it was uh, uh, an awakening, and it reminded me of something that I witnessed when I was uh, little, uh, how each fall, how people would uh, prepare to go and harvest, uh, um, to go work in Maine during the harvest. It was that kind of a similar excitement, but now it was just right out in the doorstep of our homes. Because it's the village where it's located, it's as you've seen in the documentary, it's right on the waters. And so um, it was a big excitement, and the, um, um, the, how the community responded. Uh, for those in the, uh, in the community that had uh, traps, they sh immediately started to share with the ones that needed to go out and make income. Uh, that was short-lived, uh, as you all know, um, and I think at that time, we, looking back, uh, that announcement uh, when that was made, uh, you know, it was not, um, we didn't think about some uh, that we needed to wait for anyone. It was an acknowledgement of, of our rights, our inherent rights and recognized through the treaty. And so those um, uh, excitement was quickly halted by um, the disruption of uh, the, the enforcement. And so the first year was not captured or recorded, but our community was severely assaulted um, by um, the loss that was uh, still not yet um, communicated down at the ground level. So the people at the ground level, as we're witnessing in Nova Scotia, it's not, there's some broken down of some 
system. So my community are to endure three years of um, uh, severe violence, uh, assaults against uh, our community. And uh, in truth, I, it's still difficult. I didn't watch the video uh, last night because much of the people that was on that video are not with us anymore. And because of the, the trauma and the similar impacts that uh, that comes when people exercise their rights. And so um, we didn't have, uh, fortunately, casualties on the waterfront, but if you look at the video, um, I, there was, I'm just thinking who is still alive from that video, would be maybe uh, the present uh, Olympic leadership, most of the ones that was organizing and um, working with the community are, are did not survive the, the, the trauma or whatnot. So, um, it's uh, still hard to talk about it. And um, so, uh, when our community uh, made that stand, it was not something that happened overnight because it would be, it, it's, uh, it was a 10 year in the making uh, in our community when we were reforming ourselves and looking at our own traditional plant systems. And uh, so we were, everything seemed to be in sync at the time uh, before the Marshall decision. And so, um, and we had had an election. And so the community had elected a new council that represented the plants in the community. And so that's was uh, some, something was farming for us. And so when the new council was elected, they were really a strong voice for the community. And this is where Skinwal Vidich uh, did not uh, readily sign with the agreements. And so, you know, with the agreement and that they were, uh, and they were quickly to develop our own fishing management plan. And so we were taking the initiative uh, because this, as I said, it was 10 year in discussions of uh, talking in our community and uh, looking at how we want to be as a community. So uh, it's the reality is, uh, as Graydon's talking about the treaties, uh, they're not uh, here at the ground level. You know, both for the enforce, uh, the federal and the provincial enforcements out there uh, are not kept, um, educated or that's not in place. And we could have avoided so much, so much violence against uh, our community for exercising their traditional fishing rights, inherent rights. And um, we got to feel the heavy hand of Canada and uh, how uh, our elders were traumatized. And so on the video, um, the elder, including my mother, um, uh, she's no longer with, with us. And uh, the elder Herman Somerville is not with us. And some of uh, our natural leaders who are Herman and my mother, my mother's a plant mother in my community. 
Herman, uh's partner Eva Summerlin's a grandmother, and so we we it was much more than just a fishing that was um, um, disrupted, you know, uh, in our community, and so uh, and and the um, this what was a very um, I don't know if I can find a word, but um, it was difficult to uh, look at what happened and uh, in reflecting back of uh, what happened and the depth of um, of violations uh, on our people uh, at that time, and um, it was it was a real breakdown of uh, relationships. Uh, even though those were always not very well with the Anglophone and the Francophone communities. And so, like, we got to see the, uh, the worst part of ourselves. And so, uh, through fear, because of our own fears, uh, people were, um, mis we've been misrepresented for so many years, so many generations that uh, it did not help the kind of representation that was happening all around our community. And so the neighboring community was also um, uh, media uh, and the world media was there right on top of our home. And uh, it's just um, understanding firsthand uh, to really question the, that's where the title comes from because one of our um, uh, leaders, Clifford, uh, asked, uh, and he was a, uh, uh, a veteran, and he asked, uh, that's where the title comes from, because he had inquired, is the crown at war with us? Because we got to witness and we were victims of and, uh, and experienced firsthand what happened. And um, it's a lot, a lot uh, of stuff there. And so the, the signing of the agreement was not, unfortunately, um, uh, the direction of the community. Um, but uh, what can one say when um, when funding stops? You know, because that's what happened. You know, it's almost like the treaty effect again. At what cost and how was the treaties enforced? You know, so um, I think there's more story, there's so much more to say about uh, what happened in my community. And um, I want to, I'm really grateful for Alanis for putting me in a good light because I was in the front lines the first two years, you know, when the media wasn't there. And it was, it was, not easy to um, um, to be grounded and, and to uh, when you're in that kind of uh, environment of hostility. So uh, it's still very much racism and that fear-based ness um, of uh, institutions. Uh, and um, 
neighbors are still very much there. And I don't want to dwell on that because I want to focus on something um, um, to balance that out. I'm not ignorant of it, but I think we need to uh, do uh, much more work in educating the public. Uh, we keep repeating these stories every 10 years, every 20 years, like, you know, just this, this, this fear-based uh, system keeps bringing its head up and, and doing a lot of damage among our people. So um, thank you, everyone. I think I'll uh, end there, and I want to um, spend, I'm really excited about having uh, Pam here. Uh, and I know that uh, it's been a big excitement there among the students here when they learned that you're going to be joining the panel and with you, Lavia. First of all, it's a really, it's a huge honor to be on this panel because I have long followed um, the Honorable Graydon's path. I took classes from him. He is one of the people who inspired me to go to law school. And of course, Mahan, like everybody has been following you and learning from you. You are such an important matriarch. And it also probably doesn't help that I'm really missing home right now. <laughs> and I was wishing that I was in this Atlantic bubble, especially when everything was happening to our brothers and sisters in Sebaganegadi and uh, Butelageg and Eskasoni and all of... Um, you know, those communities. So I, I really appreciate your words, Graydon, uh, you know, explaining to people in concise terms about the treaties, like even what is a treaty? I mean, people wouldn't think, but you get that question all the time. And then the development of the treaty law, and of course, Mi'kmaqan, how it plays out on the ground, because people don't realize the disconnect between a court saying, oh yes, of course you have the treaty right to fish, but then whether or not on the ground that actually works, uh, you know, because we live in this whole colonial context. So I really appreciate both of your words. And, you know, all of this, we're having this conversation in a context of racism, violence, and dispossession and oppression. That's not new. I mean, this, it continues, it might continue in different forms, under different names, with different laws and enforcement, but um, you this is the context in which we are having this conversation and, you know, Mi'kmaq, Wolastokwe, and, and all of our nations have literally suffered genocidal laws, policies, and practices for, and for us, it's been centuries, you know, like if you, if the further west you go, it's less and less, but we, we've had the full brunt of it. I mean, I don't know how many times people understand when we're talking about treaties that imagine the crown entering into peace and friendship treaties, saying we're going to protect one another, and then right after that, enacting scalping bounties, putting a price on the heads of men, women, and children to literally remove us because we refuse to surrender our land or our sovereignty. So even the treaties don't present the true reality. You know, you've got peace and friendship, which are great labels for it, but what about the scalping bounties? What about all of the things they did to make sure we couldn't actually benefit from those treaties? And I think that's why it's really important that when we're having this conversation that 
um, you know, First Nations or our, our traditional nations are living, asserting and defending our sovereignty over all of our territories all the time and that the focus be on our sovereignty. And of course, I don't mean it in the European context or philosophy, you know, it, I mean it in the general sense of the concept, nationhood, peoplehood, self-determination, autonomy, freedom, like who we are as a people. Um, because, you know, we have to realize that we're also having these conversations in English and people will default to the English concept, the English law, but we have a very specific understanding and very specific concepts. And I think, you know, just in general, whatever word you choose to use, nationhood, sovereignty, autonomy, self-determination, that's only maintained through the people on, who are willing to take all of the risk and suffer the trauma on the front lines. And people don't understand the price that is paid for us to be able to enjoy our sovereignty for the people who suffer that trauma and, and the families that suffer the trauma and the communities. It's, it's everlasting. The media might only be there for a week or two or a month, but after that, it's, it's ongoing, but yet our people will still step up and still go on the front lines and say, no, like that we have jurisdiction and responsibilities and laws that govern our uh, land, sea and air territories. And we have an obligation to protect that. And nothing about the treaties has changed that. So some people say, oh, well, you signed treaties, so you gave up your lands. No, there's nothing in the treaties that say we gave up our lands and nothing in the treaties that said we specifically gave up our sovereignty either. And so I think that's an important point and not just one that we make, but the United Nations did a special study. You know, they traveled the world to look specifically look at treaties signed by European powers and other agreements with Indigenous peoples. And they said it was very clear that when Europeans entered into these treaties with us, they did so with the specific legal acknowledgement that they were entering into agreements with sovereign entities. And in so doing, not only confirmed our sovereignty, but it included all of the laws now that would govern that relationship between two sovereigns and not subject and um, and um, that kind of thing. And, you know, how do I know this? Well, it's not just because the UN, you know, study said this. We have never been subjects of the crown and nor have we ever been conquered because we heard a lot of that kind of noise that was going along, uh, people posting on Facebook, oh, well, you've been conquered. Um, well, how do we know we weren't? Well, first of all, all of our Mi'kmaq and Willis Dequay stories talk about, you know, our sovereignty and independence and, and not ceding any of that jurisdiction or our territories, but also that, uh, you know, our laws and our governing systems. And we also know um, the United Nations, you know, studied this intensively and made this, but also the Supreme Court of Canada, although it hasn't made um, decisions directly on the issue of sovereignty, even at the Supreme Court of Canada, there's a recognition of one, we were never conquered, and two, we are sovereign peoples. I mean, if you look at the Haida Nation case at Supreme Court of Canada in 2004, it said, and I'll quote, put simply, Canada's Aboriginal peoples were here when Europeans came and were never conquered. I wish I could just mail that out to every media outlet and every social media commentator because, you know, that's the end of it, okay? We were never conquered. And we know that 
the law knows that. And then the second quote is really, treaties serve to reconcile pre-existing Aboriginal sovereignty with the assumption of Crown sovereignty. And those two things are very different. You're talking about a legitimate lived time immemorial sovereignty and a new assumption of sovereignty. And now we are trying, we're busy trying to reconcile those things. Treaties in part are supposed to be somewhat of a reconciliation around that, but where that hasn't been reconciled, where there hasn't been an agreement, the, the, the real legitimate sovereignty rests with Indigenous peoples, and that's where we are as Mi'kmaq people. So when you think about who has the right, the clear right power and authority to regulate any fisheries in Mi'kma'ki, um, that is with us. The Mi'kmaq people have the sovereign power, authority, and jurisdiction to fish, to trade in fish, to govern the fishery, to enact our own plans. And that's with or without the treaties. That's with or without Section 35 Aboriginal rights. And that's with or without government permission. So we need to have that conversation, you know, back it up. Treaties have only been in existence for a few hundred years. Time immemorial, we have our sovereign powers. All treaties did was recognize a part of what is part of our larger powers. And so treaties recognize some of these uh, issues, but they don't grant them. And so regardless of how the Supreme Court of Canada or any court, in fact, interprets our treaties, is absolutely secondary to our sovereign power over our unceded, unsurrendered, and unextinguished land, sea, and air territories. And that's where the government has to be pushed back. Because we have, you know, the other part of this is <clears throat> it wouldn't be good enough if we just said, oh, well, let, you know, let's just let the government manage all of this and we'll just take what we can get because we would be abdicating our legal responsibilities as Mi'kmaq or Wulistikoi people um, because we have an obligation. We don't just have an, an ability or a privilege or a right to fish. We have a corresponding obligation to protect the precious ecosystem in which the birds, plants, animals, and insects live and, and depend in order to survive. And so while there is a very, you know, capitalist commercial aspect to the way Canada has treated Indigenous lands and bodies as you know, exploitable, expendable resources, um, and the whole basis of capitalism is on extraction, our system's a little bit different. I would argue a lot different. And there's never been any a doubt in any of the, you know, Mi'kmaq communities that are part of the larger nation that I've ever talked to that our laws and practices have to align with our responsibilities to all living things. And that includes the health and sustainability of the fisheries. I, literally, I've never even heard in the heat of the moment, someone say, it's our right to fish all those fish until they're all gone. Like never have I heard that even in anger. So I think it's, it's really important that when we're talking about self-regulation, that we have this discussion amongst ourselves first, you know? So within the Mi'kmaq Nation, amongst all of our communities, with our Wabanaki partners, like the Wulistikwe, and make these decisions 
ourselves before we sit down at the table with government. Because the second you sit down at table with government, you're pushed on the reactive. It's like, here's how it's going to be. Go and consult with your communities. And that and, and none of what they have to say should have any relevance. We decide, and then we go to the table and say, here's how it's going to be. You now go and consult with all your federal and provincial partners and come up with a solution. And I, th I think we need to take back control. That's not to say that, th that that's going to be easy. And I know that negotiation is always the preferred route. Supreme Court of Canada has said that. We have said that through the treaties. We have consistently showed up at endless, useless, insulting, demeaning meetings and gatherings and calls and letter writing. I mean, they just have us spinning our wheels, but we keep doing it because we are acting in good faith. We are extending our hand in treaty partnership over and over and over again because we believe in the treaty principle. I mean, we sign them peace and friendship for a reason. And so obviously negotiation is preferred. However, just because Canadian legal systems exist, just because Canadian forms of government exist, doesn't mean that we are now obligated to stand down until they decide whether or not they're going to grant us something. Because we know they're offside. They've been outlaws for a long time. They violate human rights, indigenous rights. They violate their own laws. So we can't trust them um, to act expediently or in our favor. And I think we need to uh, recognize that and, and start being a little bit more forceful. I guess the other um, thing before I just end here is to say, you know, how proud I am and how much of an influence communities like, you know, Eskinobridge and um, Sabaganagadi, Budalagag, um, Eskasoni, and, and all of them really all across our territories. Um, the um, Willis-Dequay grandmothers who were defending their territories against the mine, all of them who take that risk, who who we know uh, the consequences, and even within our own communities sometimes will be vilified or will be ostracized as, you know, making trouble or, you know, don't upset law enforcement, don't upset our neighbors, and that's colonization, right? But at the end of the day, in addition to forgiving ourselves for being colonized and understanding all of the different ways in which colonization has manifested traumas and difficult relationships, our sovereignty and this territory requires that we do it anyway, requires that we defend our territories. And thank goodness this time around, um, despite the racists on the ground in Nova Scotia, the vast majority of Canadians were on side on our side, scientists, biologists, lawyers, unions, teachers, First Nations organizations all across the country, First Nations, Native Americans were, you know, issuing statements of support. I mean, things have changed. And the reason why it's changed is because of us. It's not because the government has done any public education on our behalf. It's because we're the ones on the front lines. We're the ones educating. And we're the ones who are going to make a significant difference in this world. And if we have any hope of, in fact, saving the planet and all of the species on the planet, it's going to be Canadians standing with us, supporting our sovereignty and governing these territories in the ways they should have been governed this whole time. So I sorry I'm sorry if I spoke way too fast on that, but I was trying to race my clock. <laughs> really great stuff. Uh, thank you very much, Pam, Graydon, Megamahan. We already have two questions. Um, 
we have the first one from Tiger Levi, um, and it's for the all panelists. And his question reads out, what parallels are you seeing now in terms of the political gaslighting that the Canadian government has shown in relation to the current conflict in Nova Scotia? Specifically in response to what happened with Sebaganagadi, I, you know, I saw good and bad. The bad was the knee-jerk reaction by the Minister for Fisheries and Oceans um, was to make implications that this was an illegal fishery, that it was outside of conservation, it was outside of regulations, which all that did was fuel the fire that already existed on the ground. And it also, so it sent several messages. One, it basically sent a message to these racist and violent terrorists that they could keep doing what they're doing. It sent a message to the DFO enforcement officers that they could continue to not actually stop the non-native fishermen and that they could continue to like seize traps and things like that. Um, as, as the days went by and the blowback from Canadians and biologists and scientists was like really evident and there was large scale condemnation by Canadians, you saw a very quick shift. You saw all of a sudden a response from a Minister Bennett crown and did, I don't know, relationships or something, whatever, INAC 1 and INAC 2. Um, you saw a joint statement from her and the Minister of Fisheries Notions saying, oh, wait, 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 these are treaty rights and we need to uphold these treaty rights. And so I think that was a clear reaction from the Canadian blowback. Thank you, Canadians and all the supporters. And then you saw this, this unprecedented press conference with four ministers. You know, you had the Minister of Public Safety, Bill Blair. You had the INAC 1, Minister Miller, INAC 2, Carolyn Bennett, and DFO. And all of a sudden, literally on the same panel, you have Minister Bill Blair saying, oh, yes, my RCMP officers, they did everything that they were supposed to. They're doing a good job. And then you have, you know, Minister of Indigenous Services Canada, Mark Miller, saying police have failed Indigenous peoples. And you just, you don't really see it roll out like that. And a huge condemnation coming from them, which largely echoed what Canadians were saying. So I see that as monumentally different from what happened during Escanobridge when we were following the media and just how our people were consistently portrayed as terrorists and violent and, you know, we need to stop them from fishing and, and basically really had nothing to say about the violence of the non-native fishers, even the stuff that we could see um, or the violence coming from DFO or, or, or the RCMP. I mean, I think had that happened today, we'd see a very different response. So th that's, I mean, how I see it, that's the good and the bad of how I've seen it so far. Well, first of all, I think, first of all, I want to add on a little bit to what Pam, uh, I think, is teaching all of us. And uh, and I'm glad. I mean, she was a great student, I can tell you that. And anybody who teaches anybody and sees their particular student go beyond even what uh, may be covered in class, that's fantastic. But I wanted to remain also the public uh, of this idea of nationhood and treaties. Because it's only nations who can sign treaties, first of all. That's fundamental. And this decision, of course, by the... Uh, Chief Justice Marshall of the United States Supreme Court, it goes back to 1832. And I just want to read part of that because this is not, this, I've used this particular uh, jurisprudence, if I can call that, to try to convince uh, judges in this country, to 
try to convince politicians in this country that we're dealing with nations. It's because it's only treaties that are signed by nations. Other than that, it's a contract. So here's what the Chief Justice said in, 1980, in 1832. The Indian nations had always been considered as distinct, independent political communities, retaining their original natural rights as undisputed possessors of the soil from time immemorial. And it goes on to say that the Constitution, this is the American Constitution then, by declaring treaties already made as well as those to be made to be the supreme law of the land, has adopted and sanctioned the previous treaties with the Indian nations and consequently admits their rank among the powers who are capable of making treaties. The words treaty and nation are words of our own language selected in our diplomatic and legislative proceedings by ourselves, having each a definite and well-understood meaning. We have applied them to Indians as we have applied them to other nations of the earth. They are applied to all in the same sense. So this confirms what Pam explained about sovereignty, about how we exercise our rights as a, as a nation and as a community, as a tribe. And you know, the Royal Proclamation of 1763 even uses the word tribes or nations with whom we are connected. How are we connected with the crown? But by treaties, you see? And even so, I, I like what Pam said, but I thought I would reinforce that with this particular quote uh, that I always give to my class <laughs> when the discussion goes. But if you saw that video last night, I mean, how could anyone say that the fishery officers did not did not commit criminal offenses in that video. How could anyone say that the RCMP who was supposed to be sent there did not, in fact, protect the people? In fact, the, their rights were violated. And so it's shocking. You say 1999 has happened. But as Pam just said, here just two months ago, it's resurfing in Nova Scotia. And it's unfortunate, it's sad, this is still a reality in the Canadian consciousness. Many people, they just don't understand what, that we were here before. We're still here. And that our people are nations. And that these treaties were entered on us also to say, okay, we'll enter into these treaties. And I think that's important for the academic community, most importantly, because we teach students. We can, in fact, give information to students who will go on and affect their particular communities and also help our own Indigenous students to understand that these rights are there. Aboriginal rights existed long before any treaty was entered into. And the definition for me of Aboriginal rights is a way of life. Simple. It's everything that we did. So I'll just stop there and hand it over to my good friend, Mick Mahan, and uh, she can give us more words of wisdom. I just want to um, quickly braid uh, on to what you were just sharing, Braden, and uh, and again about uh, the breakdown of that communication. And you know, uh, there's been a behavior and a set precedence for so many generations that uh, one of the examples that I want to give in the, what happened in our community in this little village, after all, that was done in uh, our own uh, peace officers and uh, fishery um, um, uh, rangers were charged in the court system for obstruction of justice. And so even then, uh, the judge at the time honored uh, our officers 
but and uh, and he praised him, but he reminded everyone in the courtroom that with all due respect, you are in our courts, and you that I would have to enforce and charge the First Nation officers for obstruction of our justice. And then you know the breakdown of that uh, box or that thinking, and why it's so important for people to know is that uh, um, if they would have further stepped maybe outside provincial level, or I'm not even sure on those levels, but um, that was a violation of their own. Canada's always violating their own laws. And so anyway, that's, I want to pass that over. I know there's more questions, but I just want to plug that in. So our people were charged, our police officers and our Rangers were charged, and so how do we, uh, in the treaty, we have a right to our own justice system, too. Okay, so our next question is from Kathy, and it's for all panelists. On university campuses, we'd like to talk, we like to talk about post-colonial this and post-colonial that, but looking at what is still going on in the world begs the question, what's post about coloniality? What could happen in law, in our communities, in our societies that would make you think, yes, this is a significant step away from colonialism? As everybody, as every Canadian knows now, the United Nations issued a Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People in 2007. Their major important functions, articles, 46 articles that are identified, identifies, first of all, Indigenous people having what they call as individual as well as collective rights. And of course, for us as nations, we are a collective. And the thing is, in one of the articles, it says you have the right to self-determination. In other words, as a nation, as a people, we have a right to make our own laws. We have the right to handle our own economic and every other activity. That is now within this United Nations instrument. Secondly, is within that article, there's an article 37, and I just read this out because I can't memorize it, but here's where it goes. Indigenous peoples, that's us, have the right to the recognition, observance, and enforcement of treaties, agreements, and other constructive arrangements concluded with states or their successors, and to have states honor and respect such treaties, agreements, and other constructive arrangements. So Canada is a successor of the crown in Britain. So these treaties that we are talking about now were signed with the British, the crown. So Canada is a successor then has to honor these particular treaties that we have. And uh, it says nothing in this declaration in any way will diminish or eliminate the rights of indigenous peoples contained in treaties, agreements, and other constructive arrangements. Unfortunately, we know that Canada has not fully endorsed this this particular um, instrument, because they're saying, well, it's not a, it's not, it's only a declaration. It's not a covenant of some kind. Uh, but our treaties were covenants, actually, because they're considered by our people as sacred instruments. And so Canada now have to say, well, yeah, okay, we'll recognize part of this, and we'll try to accommodate our legal uh, regime to make sure that uh, that we, in fact, will live up to our obligations. That is still what's being tested in our country. Whenever you deal with development of uh, resources and the territory, they're traditionally ours, or in the exercise of what rightfully ours for hunting and fishing and trapping. 
not just to make a moderate living, but in fact to make a living, to sustain themselves. Why should our people say, you cannot become wealthy? Is it just the non-native who become wealthy with these resources? I mean, that, that itself is not a statement of fairness and justice, really. And so if Canada is going to fully endorse the United Nations Declaration on the Right of Indigenous Peoples, as it has proposed in the current throne speech in Parliament, it has to go beyond just the statement of, okay, we like this. Well, it's not a matter of, that's not good enough. What's needed is, in fact, implementation of all the rights that are contained within that declaration so that we don't go into the government in a begging way. But that, in fact, is our dignity because we're nations. We are nations. And we'll never stop being nations. And that's what the essence of our people are. So anyway, thank you. I mean, I totally agree uh, with that. I think, you know, UNDRIP is raising a whole lot of questions right now, um, but there's some really important things to understand about UNDRIP. Um, it, it's not a granting document, it's a recognition document. So basically the way they explain it is that even though it is not a convention or a treaty that's been ratified, the rights that are recognized within UNDRIP represent what the United Nations considers to be already international customary law. So this is how they see um, the, the laws as it stands already. Because keep in mind, the vast majority of things that you find in UNDRIP, um, you can find in other conventions that Canada has ratified, for example. Um, or you can find... Um, in lots of in lots of different mechanisms at the UN level and it also needs to be kept in mind that you know internationally speaking any conflict any case any adjudication UNDRIP is going to be the standard so whether and how Canada chooses to implement it that is still the standard that they're held to account um, and there's very important provisions in there, a recognition that all of the traditional lands that we occupied or used are ours and we get to manage and benefit from those lands, like all of our traditional lands. And there's another provision that says we cannot be forcibly removed from our lands. And these are like very significant in addition to self-determination, the right to determine who our citizens are, what the obligations of our citizens are, um, that all of these rights are equal to, to male and female people. But you know, one of the very first provisions is the importation of all of the human rights that exist at the international level and that we shouldn't have had to do that because we're human beings and so of course we have human rights but because they've been violated for so long it was they felt it was necessary to import all of the human rights and say oh and by the way all of the international human rights from the united nations human rights uh, convention they're also included within undrip and I, I, I like what um, the Honorable Graydon mentioned about the fact that none of the rights that are recognized within UNDRIP can abrogate or derogate or otherwise hurt um, Indigenous rights that already exist. And I think that's important. Now, here's a very problematic political reality. BC, the province of BC, was celebrated for being the first province within Canada to pass legislation that requires them to bring all of their laws into compliance with UNDRIP. 
I mean, that that's significant. And no one was surprised by BC because BC um, tends to be more progressive in, in certain areas. But what happened with the first conflict of the Gidimden and Unistoten clans defending their territories in Wet'suwet'en territories from coastal gasoline pipeline? There was a complete, complete ignorance of that bill that was passed of their laws having to be in compliance with UNDRIP, and they sent in heavily armed RCMP and snipers to violently remove Wet'suwet'en peoples from their own territories, and in fact, their own places where they were living. So I know people sometimes advocate, we need more laws, we need more legal protections, but ultimately, if Canada just abided by the laws that exist here, Mi'kmaq laws and Wollastoquay laws and Canadian laws and international laws, we wouldn't have any of these problems because in case anyone didn't know, uh, racism is against the law in this country and so is genocide. So if Canada would just stop being an outlaw and abide by its own laws, you know, never mind our laws, we, we wouldn't even need to have this conversation. So we're really talking about a scenario of enforcement and assertion and protection of these laws versus the laws themselves um, and, and how they're being used. Because, man, even if they pass this legislation, if they act like BC did in the Wet'suwet'en case, we're not headed for a good place. I mean, we signed treaties, that should be good. We have Section 35, that was intended, supposed to be good. We have all these statements on the recognition of the inherent right to be self-governing and reconciliation and nation-to-nation relationships and laws that support all these things, yet we're in the exact same place. So we need to we need to go beyond the law and actually look at the practical implications, the enforcement of it, the implementation of it at a political level and at a societal level. And thank goodness, I think society's a little further ahead than our governments are, and we just need them to keep pushing. I think it's an important question. Uh, you know, wh why is this an important issue for students to know? Because first and foremost, this is real life. These are, are the, the lives, the traumas, the deaths of Indigenous peoples. And that's significant. So this isn't philosophy. This isn't politics. This isn't, you know, you know, studying something for another purpose. This is life and death. And students need to understand it that way. This isn't about rhetoric that, you know, this we're either going to live or die by ongoing racism, violence, and dispossession, and they need to understand it. Um, and I agree, you know, with the Honorable Graydon, education is so important. It's liberation, but it's it's also empowerment, right? If you, if you take education the right way, so you can take education to tick a box to get a degree, you can take education to tick a box for diversity at your place of employment, you can take education for entertainment purposes, but that would be a real insult to the purpose of education, because the purpose of education is not only for empowerment, but it is to inspire action, action for change, action for good. And I don't think anyone can argue, no matter what political stripe you are, that, you know, everybody wants good. We may define it in a little bit of a little different ways, but everyone has the right to life and well-being and safety and security. And, and so education and what we're doing here isn't just for people to know more. That, that would be horrible. It's to do more. And what education does is it doesn't just identify a problem. 
you know, like, oh, look at all of the, you know, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. It's like, well, what's the root of the problem? What's the cause of it? How did it start? What's the contributing factors? And then how do you address it? But then if you just left it there at the recommendation or solution level, we are still where we are because there's that unfinished factor of action. Now, what do you do to organize, strategize, and put that into action to take concrete steps? And that's where every government has fallen down. It's like, okay, we know what the root of the problem is. We know what the solutions are. End of story. And then we move on to the next report, which does the exact same thing. And we need to put this into action. And that's what these panels are about. It's like, we just don't want you to sit here and say, oh, isn't that too bad about the treaties? No, like you have an obligation, a moral and a legal obligation to take action on it when you know more. And we're not saying you have to be on the front lines, but you have to do something. You have to use whatever skill or influence or power or wealth you have to put into social justice because you can't expect social justice for yourself if everybody doesn't have social justice because there's literally no such thing as incremental equality. Like you either have it or you don't. There's no such thing as incremental rights or a little bit at a time. You either have it or you don't. And it's up to us to decide what do we stand for? And if Canada is going to go around bragging that it stands for human rights, well, it better stop breaching all of its human rights laws. And it's the job of Canadians, the real governing body to force these spokespeople to do their job or hold them to account. Because that's the difference here. You know, we're talking about action, but consequences and accountability. There, no longer will we as Indigenous peoples or Canadians stand for violence and racism and the trauma that's inflicted on Indigenous peoples. And yes, some of that's going to mean a transfer of power, wealth, land, and um, all of that back to Indigenous peoples. It's going to be a recognition that we deserve um, our place on Turtle Island, because keeping in mind that we are the original sovereign nations in this territory. And so long as there is one land defender left, we always will be. And it's in Can you know, Canadians and indeed the world's best interest to get behind Indigenous peoples, because you don't see a whole lot of other people putting their lives on the line to, to protect the lands and waters from complete and utter climate destruction. And that's where we all need to come together. Oh, I really hope you enjoyed this panel discussion and some of the Q&A session. And thank you to all of our podcast listeners for tuning in to the Warrior Life podcast. And thanks to all of you who have already done so much to help support Mi'kmaq peoples over the last few months. It's meant a great deal to our families, our communities, and our nation. We are always stronger when we come together for social justice and earth justice. Please share this podcast and the video with your friends, families, communities, schools, colleagues, and help with our mission to educate widely so we can take substantive action on these issues. I'll also post links to where you can find out more about the situation in Mi'kma'ki and different ways that you can provide support. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliog. Well,